Several of our young men will be passing out four by six cards. It's that time of year. Uh, For the last several years, I have asked you, the members of the congregation, for input uh, for sermons. So these would be sermons that might well be preached in 2023. 2023. They're passing blank cards out. I think some of them have lines. But anyway, on one side of the card, on one side of the card, respond to this. What is your favorite chapter in the Bible? There's only 1,189 of them. Uh, What is your favorite chapter in the Bible? Or who is your favorite Bible character outside of Jesus? Who is your favorite Bible character outside of Jesus? What is your favorite Bible chapter. Someone might say Genesis chapter 1. Someone might say Nehemiah chapter 1. Somebody might say John 1. Well, all right. Uh, Put that down on one side of the card. Now for the other side of the card. Lord willing, next year we will have a monthly question and answer session. Maybe you have a Bible question that you would like to have discussed. Write that question down. Maybe it has to do with the end of time. Maybe it has to do with uh, the problem of evil and why good people suffer. Maybe it has to do with something about the Bible. How do we know that the Bible hasn't been corrupted over the ages? Questions of that type of nature that can be addressed in a question and answer session. So on one side, your favorite Bible character outside of Jesus, and if you choose, your favorite chapter in the Bible. And on the other side, any Bible question that you might have. It might be relative to uh, leadership or something like that, or worship. I do this for several reasons. One is I believe it's important to have the input of the congregation from time to time on sermons. I'm going to tell you why. I make every effort to preach the whole counsel of God. I believe Adam does the same. The Bible talks about that. But I cannot tell you how much I have been helped and encouraged. This past year, for example, someone asked me to preach on the subject of spousal abuse. I have mentioned that in sermons. But I know this, I probably preached hundreds of sermons on marriage and the family, and any reference made to spousal abuse was just a passing one. So three or four hundred or better sermons on marriage and the family, it seemed only appropriate when I got that request to do something on spousal abuse. It happens. Some time ago, someone asked me to preach on singleness. Same thing is true. Steve, I can't count the number of times I've preached on marriage and the family, brother. Parenting, good subjects, biblical subjects. 
But there's a lot of people in the church that are single or single again. Amen? And they need to be encouraged in the light of the Word of God too. So people do help in areas like this. And I solicit your input. If you do not give me input, do not complain that the preacher never asks you anything about sermons. Because I'm doing just this. It gives ladies a great opportunity to have input for future sermons. It gives young people. It gives senior saints. It helps everybody. And thanks to the young men for picking those, uh, for putting those out. And I'll ask you to pick them up after uh, the invitation song is sung. All right? After the invitation song is sung. It's good to see that... Osvaldo and Laura Valdez are with us. We love them. We appreciate them. They are just about to be leaving for Argentina uh, to visit a family member that is ill. We want to keep them in prayer. Osvaldo and Laura Valdez, they're precious to us, and we supported them for many years in Argentina. And it's been our blessing and privilege to do that. Good to see at least some of the oars back uh, this morning. Julie, Julie is not feeling well. Okay, that's probably to be expected. If one out of four uh, in that length of trip, they all had gone to the Bible lands together, and I'm sure they had a great time of learning and fun as well, but it's good to have you guys back. Today is that day where I preach on sermons you've suggested. I'd like to hear a sermon on baptism, someone said. I am only too glad to accommodate. When the subject of baptism arises within churches of Christ, you get the distinct impression that some people are going, again, you get the distinct impression that some are going, yes, we need to have this type of refresher pretty often. And yet there's also an impression that's not verbalized, but probably needs to be. The vast majority of Christendom does not embrace that baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. I'll say this by way of introduction. The truth on Bible baptism must never be watered down. The truth on Bible baptism must never be watered down. Pun intended. If one considers the New Testament, baptism is a frequently mentioned subject. One could not declare the whole counsel of God without declaring the will of God concerning baptism and its purpose. So to that end we go. But to keep everybody with me, I want you to understand this. What baptism won't do and what baptism will do are both Themes that need to be considered regarding baptism. What baptism won't do 
and what baptism will do. Let's invest some time looking at that first theme, what baptism won't do. And let me share with you six or seven things that baptism won't do. First of all, in discussing baptism, baptism won't give anyone license to sin. Baptism won't give anyone license to sin. It seems to me that that's almost a kin view to once saved, always saved, except denominational people believe in once saved, always saved after faith alone. And some would almost contend that after baptism alone, you can do whatever you want. That is not what the Bible teaches. Open your Bibles to Romans 6 verse 1. In Romans 6 verse 1, it begins with a rhetorical question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid, Paul would say. And he goes on in verses 2 and following to discuss the purpose, the place of baptism within the Christian system. The purpose of baptism as a response to God's saving gospel. And notice what he says. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. If we have been united with him in death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Notice verse 6. It says that the old man has been crucified with him. The old man has been crucified with him. Look at Romans 6 and verse 12. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Far from being a license to sin. Baptism is a clear indication of how much someone hates sin and what it brought about. The death of Jesus for us and how we want to live holy lives that honor God. Yes, Christians still sin, but I want you to know baptism doesn't just give somebody a license to sin and live any way they please. Number two, baptism won't keep you from temptation. A perfect example of that is Matthew 3. Jesus is baptized. Then Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. If this were true of Jesus, you and I can certainly see that we too will be tempted. Baptism won't keep us from being tempted Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But with every temptation, God provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Paul would talk about disciplining his body, lest after he had preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. So what I'm getting across here is this. 
Baptism won't remove temptation from your life. And I suspect when a person comes to Christ in baptism, the devil's going to work a lot harder to get you back into the fold. So temptation will be something that we all have to wrestle with, that we all have to struggle with. Here's something else to consider. Baptism won't necessarily remove the fruit of all sin. It won't necessarily remove the fruit of all sin. Does baptism deal with sin in the light of the New Testament? Yes, absolutely. But the fruit of all sin is not removed necessarily at the point of baptism. A classic example is 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15. Open your Bible there. 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15. Here's why. Paul refers to coming to Jesus. Paul is alluding in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15 to his own baptism. He talks about in this section how he had persecuted the church of God and how he did it ignorantly and in unbelief. When you look at the life of Paul prior to becoming a Christian, we understand he persecuted the church. We understand he was party, he was a participant in Stephen's death. Paul becoming a Christian wasn't going to bring Stephen back, was it? It wasn't going to liberate the people that he'd helped put in jail who were Christians. He still had to live with the fruit of sin in his life, at least to some degree. And we call this the price of forgiven sin. The high price of forgiven sin because it's still in our memory. Did God forgive Paul? Yes. Did Paul forgive himself? I believe that he did. But like all of us as human beings, we have in our memories, sometimes indelibly impressed in our minds, things that we have done that were wrong. And the thought of them still stings our consciences. They strike at our very soul. Isn't that true? There are sins that can be forgiven. But the fruit of those sins may linger. And I'll tell you this, anything like that, that will linger in my life, that will cause me to hate sin and love Jesus, I am glad to bear. And you should be too. Paul lived with the memory of what he had done to Christians. And I believe that made him love the Lord more and want to be a better Christian. Don't you? Continuing. This is number four, what baptism won't do. Baptism will not remove all your problems. If you like a sweet lady named Cherie has a difficult husband. Her baptism, nor his for that matter, completely removed all the difficulties from her life as it concerned her husband. 
There are things that we all experience. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. With but much tribulation we shall enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 We all know people who may preach Christ out of envy or strife. Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 15. They do it for motives that are less than pure and godly. But what they say is true. So when you think about this, all of our problems do not go away when we are baptized. In fact, at least occasionally our problems are added to. Number five. What baptism won't do, it will not, it will not relieve us of further responsibility to grow, to develop. Paul would tell the Galatian Christians, you did run well, who did hinder you from obeying the truth? They'd come to the Lord, but they were kind of at a standstill spiritually, Galatians 5 and verse 7. The Bible talks about letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1.27. About being steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15.58. I want you to understand, please, friends, that baptism, as vital a theme as it is biblically, won't do some things. And these are things that baptism will not do. It was not its design by God to fully do all these things. Number six. Baptism will not save if not preceded by faith and repentance. Baptism will not save if it's not preceded by faith and repentance. By faith. Without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God. He that would come to Him must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews eleven six. Without repentance, except you repent, you shall die in your sins. Luke 13, 3-5. We can take a person and dunk them in the waters of that baptistry a thousand and one times, but it will not make them a child of God unless they believe and trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. We can take that person and dunk them a thousand and one or as many times as we would like. It will not make them a child of God if they are not repenting of sin the sin in their life. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17 and verse 30. Now, that brings me to a seventh area. So when we talk about baptism, I get the idea, at least occasionally, that some preachers or Bible class teachers or some people in the middle of a Bible class give the, the impression that baptism is the, man, uh, the, the magic pill that cures everything. That is not what the Word of God says. We need to represent accurately what the Word of God says. 
and what the Word of God does not say. But number seven, what baptism won't do is save anyone against their will. Baptism won't save anybody against their will. Because a person wanting to come to Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, is of the utmost importance in conversion, in becoming a Christian. Now, having dealt briefly with what baptism won't do, let's spend a little bit of time looking at what baptism will do. Are you with me? I want to do this by asking about seven questions. We had seven observations about what baptism won't do. Well, now let's look at seven questions and their answer regarding what baptism will do. Question number one. What is Bible baptism? What is Bible baptism? With all that is said in the New Testament about the subject, I think that we can put together a good definition, a good description of what Bible baptism is. Listen to me, please. Bible baptism is the immersion in water of a believing, penitent individual who is responding to what God has done in Jesus to have the forgiveness of their sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and to be added to the church of Christ. What is Bible baptism again? It is the immersion of a believing and penitent individual in response to what God has done to save in Christ. And that immersion takes place so that the person knows, first of all, forgiveness of sin. Secondly, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then third, is added to the church of our Lord. Now let's just look at some passages that will show that. Look at Galatians 3. 26 and 27, they were read by Andrew Pafford just prior to my coming up and beginning this study with you. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Notice the terminology. As many of you as were baptized, what is the word? As many of you as were baptized... Into. The opposite of that expression is striking out of. We were out of Christ and something is being done as we respond to get into Christ. 
As many of you as were baptized into Christ did what? Put on Christ. Or something very much like that. So apart from New Testament baptism, one is not in Christ and has not put him on. Turn to Romans chapter 6 and look at verses 3 through 5 with me. In Romans 6 verses 3 through 5, Paul speaks of coming to Christ. And notice especially it says that We were buried with Christ. When? Through baptism. And we are raised with Christ through baptism as well. Note especially 3 through 5 of Romans 6. Raised with Him in baptism. Colossians 2 and verse 12. We understand that baptism involved much water, John 3 and verse 23. The very word means to plunge, to dip, to submerge, to immerse. The immersion of a believing, penitent individual in response to the gospel or what God has done in Christ in order to have sins forgiven, more about that in a moment, the gift of the Holy Spirit, more about that, and to be added to the church that Jesus purchased with His blood, Acts 20 and verse 28. Now, here's a second question. Are there examples of Bible baptism? Abundant examples. We can turn to many places, but I'm going to focus on one book in particular, the book of Acts. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And I would like to say, if we do what they did, we will be what they were. If we do what they did to become Christians, we'll be what they were, Christians. Because the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved, has the same answer now as it did then. In Acts chapter 2, religious, moral people, Acts 2, 4, devout men from every nation under heaven were present. They heard, when you look at verses 14 through 36, Peter preach that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that He has come. And that he lived a perfect life. And he was crucified for our sins. Note their response. They were pricked, they were touched in their heart by what Peter proclaimed. And they cried out, what shall we do? They believed that they were guilty And their sins were the cause of Jesus going to the cross. What shall we do? 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. One is on rock-solid ground to respond to people that way today. If a person really wants to know how to be in Christ and how to put on Christ, why don't we just look at what the people did when the first gospel sermon was preached? Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 12 and 13. Some Samaritans come to Christ. They hear the word of God and it says they were baptized. You keep looking at the context of Acts 8 and an Ethiopian nobleman. In verses 25 and following of Acts 8. Here is a man who loves the Word. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. He's on his way home. There's so many great qualities about this person, but he needs to hear about Jesus and what God has done through Jesus. And he needs to believe it and repent of his sins and be baptized. And that is exactly what he does upon hearing the message of Philip who preached to him Christ. Acts 8. And verse 35, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, we read about his conversion in Acts 9, in Acts 22, in Acts 26. Here was a man who was moral, who was a person who was zealous for the law, a person who truly loved the God of the Old Testament. And because of that, he had a built-in antagonism to Jesus and this newfangled stuff. At least probably that's how he would have thought. And rather than see Jesus as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had pointed to, he saw Jesus and the early Christians as a corruption. And you know what? He was wrong. He was wrong. And his conversion shows us that if anybody on earth can be wrong, it is sincere, moral, religious people who love the God of the Old Testament. Who's also the God of the New. Question number three. What is baptism for? What is baptism for? I am so glad the New Testament answers that question. Focus with me on two passages. The first passage is Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. What is baptism for? You may have the word unto if you have an older translation. What is baptism for? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for or unto the forgiveness of your sins. Mark it. That is definitely a salvation type of synonym. Forgiveness of sin for salvation. Because nobody can be saved without first having their sins forgiven by Jesus. 
by that, place in your Bible this reference, if you would. Matthew 26 and verse 28, where Jesus says, This is the blood of my New Testament shed for many, for, in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins. For. What is baptism for? Turn to Acts 22, 16, secondly. Acts 22 and verse 16. To some people, the things that I'm saying is nothing new, and that's just fine with me. But to some, it's helping us to see some things and to refresh our minds. And to others, it may be dealing with, in a big subject, and a thorough way, exactly what they need to have dealt with. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, Paul is told, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Mark that. Whatever is involved in calling on the name of the Lord, baptism is included. And not only that, at the point of baptism, the message Paul heard was that God had promised to wash away his sins. Listen, everybody. If God promises to wash away your sins and mine on any condition, on any condition, ought we not comply with that condition? That should be enough. And he does this on the basis of the blood of Jesus, Ephesians 1 and verse 7. Fourth, what does baptism do? Baptism saves, Mark 16, 16. 1 Peter 3, 21. When we repent based on our belief in Jesus as God's Son... Baptism saves. I think this is one of the most significant matters. By whose authority should baptism take place? I want you to know that baptism should not take place merely because Mike Vestal says it so. I want you to know that baptism should not take place merely because Adam Orr says it's so. And as much as I love Lynn and Terry, I want you to know that baptism doesn't take place simply because Lynn and Terry say that it's so. We plead with people to be baptized today because baptism has the authority of God behind it. Matthew 28, 18-20, the baptism of the Great Commission is done in the name 
of the Father and the Son and the Spirit according to that passage. In other words, it's done by the authority of God. I am responding to the authority of God and what He has done in Christ to save my soul. And in Acts 2.38 it says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. Well, why? You look through that section of Acts and there's the repeated emphasis on the name of the Lord. The name of Christ. And I'm going to tell you why. Because He has God all over Him. And by responding to Jesus and His authoritative saving name, you're also responding to the Father and the Spirit. Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always on the same page, y'all. Always. Another question. So baptism ought to be administered by the authority of God. And especially in view of Christ and what He accomplished at the cross. How many baptisms are there? I knew as soon as I asked that question, Clay was going to say one because I've heard him say it a million times. And I'm glad. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 5 says there is one baptism. There are as many baptisms as there are faiths and lords, God and fathers and spirits. One. It seems to me that there is one baptism that finds its roots in God Himself that is to continue until the Lord's second coming. And that is New Testament Bible baptism of a person who believes and repents and is immersed in water in responding to what God's done in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, to have the gift of the Holy Spirit and to be added to the church, the body of Christ. That brings me to this question. When should a person be baptized? When should a person be baptized? Think about this. Turn to Acts 8 and verse 12. Acts 8, 12. A person should be baptized. And I'm not going to give you a year. I'm not going to discuss the age of accountability. Not specifically. But Acts 8.12 is clear in my mind that a person is a candidate for New Testament baptism when they are capable of believing things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now that includes some things. The kingdom of God, the name of Christ, and trusting and responding properly thereto. A 
person needs to hear, to believe, to repent, to confess, to acknowledge with their mouth Jesus is the Son of God and to be buried in water for the forgiveness of sins. New Testament baptism. Now think about this with me. It's a matter of our heart and mind. It's a matter of your heart and your mind. Coming to Jesus is not just a matter of your heart, it's a matter of your mind. Coming to Jesus is not just a matter of your mind, it's a matter of your heart. I think some people believe intellectually in the truth of baptism, but their heart is far removed from really applying what it's all about. But listen here. One is to have a good and honest heart. Amen? Luke 8, 15. That has to do with hearing and believing God's message. So your heart and your mind are involved in that. How about repentance? They were pricked in their heart in Acts 2.37 when they heard the message of the crucified Savior and Lord. Shouldn't people be pricked in their hearts when they hear the message? It leads people to repent. Repentance is a matter of the mind and heart that says, I don't want to go that way. I want a change of direction. And only God can lead me in the right direction. I'm following His way. Now listen. I would say baptism is a matter of the mind and heart too. I have decided to follow Jesus. Open your Bibles to Romans 6, look at verses 17 and 18. God wants your mind, but He wants your heart. He wants your heart and your mind and soul. Look at Romans 6, 17 and 18, and Paul says to these people who had come to Christ, You have been obedient from what? From what? From the heart to the form, that's right, to the form of doctrine that was delivered, the truth. That's all that is being asked of you this day. Won't you obey the form of doctrine from the heart that comes to us from Jesus? Let us stand and sing.